Welcome to Mormon Visual Culture, a podcast about art that inspires and has an influence on LDS culture, brought to you by the Zion Art Society. I'm Micah Christensen. I'm Eric Bigert. And in this bonus episode, we took uh, advantage of the opening of the 93rd Annual Salon, a competition held every year at the Springville Museum of Art. The salon is its titled with the 93rd has been going on for 93 years and it is by far the most important contest for contemporary artists that takes place in the region and it has been a long established place where you can get a pulse an idea of what's going on in contemporary art in a variety of genres and and, and styles and Eric and I went down there. We had never done anything like this really before and um, decided we would pick a few works that struck us at the time and have a conversation in front of them. In a couple of cases, especially in the case of uh, the winner this year, who is Howard Lyon for his piece, After the Dance, we're able to actually talk with him. But before we get into talking about those works individually or hearing the conversation we had with Howard Lyon. Um, I just wanted to say a few words about the Spring Salon itself. Uh, the Spring Salon is um, something I've, ju- I've juried a couple of times. I juried it first in 2010, and then I did it again later in 2013. So apologies to anyone who didn't yeah. make it in in 2010, 2013. Right. <laughs> and I, I want to say something about the process of juring the show. Because it, there, there's inevitably um, a, a sense of winners and losers when we talk about contests. And um, as somebody who's juried it, I think it's good to put into context how the show happens, what kind of artists submit, what, how the process happens. And um, just, just briefly, um, thousands of artists submit to this contest. And um, they're from, like I said in, uh, earlier, all different styles. So you have abstract mm-hmm. works, you have landscapes, you have figurative art, you have people working in sculpture, you have people working in oil, acrylic, photography, installations, installations. You have you have uh, people working in 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 sound and visuals uh, um, mediums. S- speaking of sound, at the opening reception we went to on Wednesday night, Micah got to see his favorite band oh my in heavens. person. Book oh on tapeworm. Book on tapeworm was there. If you haven't heard of them. Do yourself a favor and and look up book on tapeworm. You've never Amazing. seen an art historian <laughs> give up on art so quickly. I turned to into a giggly little fanboy yeah. <laughs> about seeing them. It was fantastic. <laughs> so so being a juror, let me just talk about this jury process. So there, I'm surprised at how many artists don't know how this has worked. It's not that the museum's quiet about this, but thousands of artworks are submitted and they can't all fit on the walls. That's just the most basic fact it's physics yeah right so what they do is they tell the two jurors they have one who's usually traditional and classical in their background which was me on on uh, when i was jurying and then they have someone who comes from a more contemporary modernist background and they're given two pads two uh, sets of post-it notes one color indicates keep it in the show no matter what and another one is Take it out of the show. And you're told, get rid of half the paintings in this room. And you go from room to room to room doing that. 
until you have enough paintings that can fit on the walls. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's simply a process of how many things fit. And this often means that the limitations are um, if you have an artist, each artist is allowed to submit two pieces. Sometimes people submit one really large piece and a smaller piece. And then as a judge, your job is to say, do I keep the big piece and potentially knock out a couple of people who have who could fit in with smaller pieces in the place of that one piece? And I take the artist's smaller work. Or do I keep in the bigger work because it's that impressive? Now, it doesn't always boil down to something that simple because sometimes the bigger work is just so amazing that you have to do it. And sometimes both works by the artist, are, they merit both being in there, mm -hmm. right? And, and I noticed that there were a few artists who this year uh, met that. And then top prizes are given. Um, when I did it, there were, um, there were a first, second, and third place, and then honorable mentions. I think there were 10 on top of that. And you kind of have a negotiation with the, uh, with the other judge. And then the, uh, the, the um, uh, director and her or his curatorial staff get to decide a, a director's prize and a few others. Yeah. Um, one or two pieces almost always get put into the, the permanent collection of the museum. And a lot of these are for sale too. That's right. And they're usually at a for sale at a discount of what you'd normally buy them retail wise. Mm -hmm. So if you've, if, if you've never been to it and you want an excuse to buy art, this is, this is where you often can see the best of the best art available for less than it usually is. And I think it's 30% of the proceeds go to the Springville Museum of Art. So 30% of the proceeds are tax deductible. And you get to tell your friends and family that it was a piece that was featured in the Springville Spring Salon in whatever year it was in there. Right. Which boosts its value a little bit, both as a, a talking point and as an actual work of art. Yeah, And if you go the night we went, you get to meet the artists yeah. themselves. And so every year they have this opening... This opening uh, uh, Banquet's not the right word, but there's food. It's a reception. And and the artists have name tags. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we went there, it was, it's a huge museum. Um, and it was almost elbow to elbow wherever you went. It was packed. Yeah. And it was, it was only there. It was only a two hour reception from six to eight, I think it was. Yeah. And I got there a half an hour late and there was nowhere to park for blocks and blocks. So yeah. I parked illegally in front of a driveway around the backside, yeah. but it was incredible how many people were there. And, uh, nearly every artist, I saw the table when we were walking out with the name tags and there was maybe only a handful of people, yeah. of artists who didn't come. And most of them yeah. were probably because they just lived too far away Yeah, because this is not local to Springville like it was in 1922 when they first had it. Yeah. It is a statewide event. I have to say that for those who are somewhat intimidated by the idea of going to art receptions, seeing people in mock turtlenecks and <laughs> um and and tuxedos, this th there isn't a feeling. It's a it's a very welcoming, positive environment. It's the kind of place that you immediately feel like you can be Yeah. And it's you, still you Springville be. because a lot of people there were in jeans and t-shirts yeah and uh it's not it's not you know a east coast boston level of modern art and very pretentiousness there was a lot of people who 
looked like regular Joes and they turned around and they were wearing a name tag and you realized, oh, they created that incredible portrait in the corner over there. Having said that it doesn't feel like an East Coast elite place, it does have elite artists in it that do show their work in the East. So you have people like Casey Childs, Mm -hmm. uh, who just won a top prize, along with Mary Sauer, who was there, just won top prizes at the National Portrait Society of America, which is an annual contest held every year. Um, this year was in Atlanta. And 3,000 artists compete for that prize. And we, as a culture, consistently, uh, a local artist co- culture, consistently provide 10 out of the top 20 awards that are given there, it seems like, every year. And Casey had two works in it. Mary Sauer had two works in it. Um, there's, um, oh, um, artist who did, um, we'll talk about his works, J- uh, Jethro, Jethro Gillespie. Yeah. Gillespie. He's, a, he's a teacher. He's an artist. He's an art teacher um, in a high school. He's also a teacher. Um, uh, he's also a, an artist on his own, and he's been featured on PBS. He's got relationships with artists all over the, the country and, and the world. Um, heavy hitters. Mm-hmm. Heavy hitters there. Yeah. And so... It, it is totally welcoming, but it's also intimidating because those artists are there and they're very approachable. And I, um, I, and I, I have relationships with, with many of them that I've just known over the years from going to these things. But being with them, I'm still a little awestruck. I was awestruck. Mm-hmm. It was great. It was a great experience. We should also note real quick that the Spring Salon is open now. It opened April 26th and it runs through July 8th at the Springville Museum of Art. In Springville, Utah. So if you've never been, and if you have been, make a chance to go because it's an incredible show. Incredible. Okay, so before we we, we play our, our noisy conversations that we had with each other and with others there, let me just say what our goal was when we went down there. I have a, a chip on my shoulder. Yep. I, the chip on my shoulder is that um, we have one of the largest communities of artists per capita, anywhere in the world, bar none. And one of the highest quality um, productions of art in the world in multiple styles. And we have very few critics talking about them. Very few opportunities for there to be discussions and, and, and articles dissecting not only the whole contest as it happens. If we're lucky, we'll get every major newspaper in the area writing a blurb on it. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're very, very lucky, we'll get an article that tells us who all the winners were and that talks about one or two pieces. Compare this to the 19th century or the turn of the century, where if there was a salon or a, a contest in a, any major city, there would be three or four critics who would cover it. And they would often write one or two sentences about every one of the 100, 200, 300 pieces that was on the contest. And when you walked into a contest like this, you would have the opportunity to buy a pamphlet mm-hmm. that would be a guide by critic A, B, or C, and you could get a satirical take on the contest. You could get a humorous take on the contest. You could get a serious take on the contest from somebody who was of one modernist persuasion of someone who was a classicist and i know that may be impossible to come to again and it it, it's something that i feel like the job of the critic and what i want hope that we can do more and more as a culture and maybe we can play pay our 
small contribution to this is is somebody who provides a more of criticism and criticism I don't mean this is good or this is bad I mean an opportunity to discuss that's what I mean by criticism and that's exactly what we did <laughs> we did and we didn't go in there with a particular discipline we didn't go no. in there and say hey um, let we let's pick this piece apart our approach was more let's sit down and pick three or four pieces that stick out to us and see what we thought about them off the cuff. I don't know if I'm going to be super proud of everything I said. It's not like I took on a formalist art historical discipline in, in looking at these or I was looking at them from a Marxist point of view or, yeah. or a, a, a certain academic stance. But I think we had some interesting discussions and I enjoyed it. I did too. So uh, the first one, we'll go chronologically, and you'll see how uh, our... Chronologically in the order of the conversations yes, we had. and how we went through okay. the museum. Um, but the first one that we saw, and we'll introduce the piece, was a work by the artist J. Kirk Richards, who was featured on our first episode of this podcast. This is Micah Christensen. I'm here with Eric Bigger. We're standing in front of a work by J. Kirk Richards... And the piece is titled Crown of Thorns, 2017 Mixed Media. Do you want to describe it for us, Eric? Yeah, so it's kind of a, a three-dimensional sculpture hanging on the wall here. There's a, a looks like an iron panel that's rusted and patinaed, and then some carved or formed wood that is uh, representing the kind of the hair and the beard and the outline of the face of Christ. But there is no face. The face is just negative space, and then it's... Uh, got a representation of the crown of thorns on the top which really just looks like rusted barbed wire that's kind of braided around itself and tied together it looks like found art it looks like this it's very different than anything i've ever seen him do before i know that he's done sculpture in the past but traditionally the sculpture i've seen him do is either bronze or plaster this is it's almost like he's let the metal oxidize and the wood looks pretty rough but it also looks like it's had some treatment yeah. never seen anything quite like it definitely requires more from the viewer because the viewer yeah. is meant to imagine the face and, well, and, and and even the scene is abstracted of the thorn isn't really a crown of thorns and walking through this hallway in the museum here we initially walked past it um, without stopping to notice exactly what it was and then as soon as I saw Crown of Thorns, and you kind of step back and you look at it, you see that there's a face, and it's all formed with a focus being on the negative space, um, kind of framed, again, by the work itself. After seeing the work by J. Kirk Richards, we went around the corner near the offices for the administration of the Springville Museum of Art. Now, I just wanted to say a word before we talk about the next painting that we discussed, which is Howard Lyons' Uh, after the dance that won the first place prize. Um, for those who were familiar with how the show used to be hung under uh, uh, Vern Swanson, who was the director for almost 25 years, um, Rita Wright, when she took over the museum in 2012, started hanging the shows a little differently. Um, Vern put all of the award winners in one room, in the drop-down room, which is now called the Swanson Room. And then he divided things strictly by genre. So there was an area where abstract modernism was, and then there was an area where 
the um, where the realist works were, and there was a place where there was more genre, landscape pieces, and and Rita shook that all up. Um, some people really, some people don't like it. Some people really like it. I'm one of those who I feel like um, I like the unpredictability in a way of you don't know exactly where the award winners are, and so it forces you to be more curious and to look around. Mm-hmm. And you're not as dismissive about some spaces. You don't think, oh, that room, that's where all of these are. That'll be my lowest priority. Mm-hmm. And this work that we saw by Howard, what was great about hanging it there instead of in the big room is because it's smaller, you're able to, it, it feels more intimate, which is what this painting needs. So with that, I should say, we talked about it, you and I, Eric, mm-hmm. and then we, a few minutes later, were in an, another room and there was Howard and we decided to have an interview with him. So our discussion will then go directly afterwards um, to a con- the conversation we had with Howard about his piece. We're standing in front of the first place award, which went to Howard Lyons' painting after the dance, an oil on panel of a young woman laying down with a fan in her hand on a lounging, I would say, on a uh, in a chair with with Greco-Roman tripods on either side. If this was a 19th century painting, it would be called a Dolce Far Niente. It would have been done in the 1870s or 80s by Leighton, Waterhouse, Albert Moore, Alma Tadema, um, perhaps even a Tissot in there. It's very much of a piece with those. The thing that strikes me about this, though, because it, it clearly was done contemporaneously, is it is... And let me qualify that. This pose isn't the same kind of pose they would choose but it is beautifully modeled his control of the figure is incredible just like other works by Howard it's a very tight stroke the colors are much warmer than almost anything here everything is gem-like everything is strong the figure is unreproachable it's incredible and it's a difficult pose that he's chosen it's to me from everything I've seen here the strongest figure to work in the show even though it's not a huge work. I'm glad, because normally the largest works get the most attention. I'm glad that a small work got first place. So I'm here with Howard Lyon, whose work won the... uh, It's called After the Dance, right? Yes. Won first place. You have another work that's in it. It's one of my favorite pieces. I have no idea how the judges chose between them. But first of all, um, if you would have guessed which one of your two pieces won the first place... And somebody told you that and not told you which one, would you have guessed the one that won the first place? You know, I would have. You would have? Why? For, for me, I felt like it was a stronger piece for me, but I was surprised that it won because of its size, because it is a tiny piece. That did surprise me. Okay, we want to interview you at length another time about your work in general, but I do want to ask this question because I feel like you hold in a unique place within the... What's the word? I'm like universe that we occupy, and that's that you do these very strong figurative works, very strong compositions, jewel-like colors. Um, they almost never fit with it. They, at least these two pieces. No clear narrative that someone is saying, "Oh, that's an that is the story of you know so and so and so and so," and in a way. I feel like that, that lends a lot of strength to them. It's not I'm not making a positive or negative thing about it. I'm just interested in the choice of not 
lending a strong narrative to your pieces. Is sure. that a deliberate choice? It is. I want to tell my own stories, and, and a lot of times there's a symbolism in the piece that that I conceptualize first and then build a piece around it, and that was the okay. case with both of those paintings. Are you hesitant to tell people about all the symbolism and so forth that's in these pieces? Is it something you want people to figure out on their own? Or if somebody were to talk to you, you'd say... You know, it, usually I don't... I When you have to write your little artist statement that goes with it, I don't like to put too much in there about it because I, I do like people to interpret them and, and yeah. try and decide. But um, I don't mind telling people what the piece is about either. Okay. One more question. Yeah, one more question. If I put your two pieces side by side, it reminds me of a comment that was made about Jerome by Jerry Ackerman, who Jerome's uh, the criticism against Jerome in the 19th century, the famous academician, was that he painted for print, and and painting for print back then meant that color didn't show up, and so he never took it. He, he, he didn't care about color. He just cared about pumping them out so they'd go into a black and white newspaper. Yeah. But when I saw with Jerry Ackerman, who is the great Jerome expert, Jerome, he said, this criticism is all wrong. I can't believe the variation that is in his coloring. If I had looked at your work over the past five, the past year alone, and it's just the ones I'm aware of, there is a huge variation in warmth, coolness. I, I mean, are, are you super conscious of that these two pieces in particular they're very different are very different in their palette and and there's no way that if you were a 19th century artist anyone would ever accuse you of painting for print because they come across so strong and differentiated you know in that coloring that palette do you see what i mean that was a long walk to get to hey, my comment i i I love Jerome so much, so anytime, I mean, if there's a <laughs> criticism against Jerome that someone wants to level at me, I'll take that. That's, I don't know, it wasn't, and it wasn't no, no, criticism. No, 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 I, I know, it I know. It, um, it, it is a conscious thing. I feel like I'm still, I feel like I'm still trying to grow up to be an artist yeah. and in learning, and so with, with some of my more recent pieces, I will, I will take a period of art that I admire, or an artist in particular that I admire, yeah. And uh, and read and study about them and then paint, hmm. and uh, it, it affects how the how the works turn out. So that's what makes a difference in palette, not necessarily a conscious choice of I did all warm this time. Right. Yeah. I'm gonna go do this this time. Right. Yeah. It's more it's more a reflection of my study of artists that I admire. Okay. Last question. I lied. There's one more question, <laughs> and I promise this is the last one. It's a smaller piece. Right? The, yeah, the, the one by one sixteen. Yeah. I've heard that it takes just as much work right. to make a small work as it does to make a monumental one when you're dealing with issues of outlining the figure, getting the modeling right. So why go small rather than big? You know, I, that's a great question. <laughs> I do think... <laughs> you don't necessarily have... Oh, man. After I... When I'm halfway through a small piece, I'm often just kicking myself thinking, <laughs> I'm not going to get my money back out of this painting this small and detailed because yeah if I were to if I had done that you know 24 by 32 um, I think I, it would have taken me the same amount of time same amount of time it. yeah it um, I do like the I do like the that Dutch painting where you you look at it and then you look closer and then you look closer and 
and Dutch cabinet paintings. Yeah, it's almost you want to hold them on your lap yeah, like and look at it. Take it off the wall and look at it. And yeah, I I love that kind of painting, and so it's another reflection of of works that I love. You know, you get that with Katama too, even on his giant painting like Spring. Yeah. You just want to keep looking, and there's so much it, beautiful information. It doesn't in feel there. like a giant painting yeah. because every detail you're right. absorbed so close in it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I could talk with you forever. <laughs> I'll cut. I'll let you go back to people. The next piece we talked about was a larger work by uh, Colby Sanford. He had two works in the show, right, Eric? I think so. Yeah. And and uh, this was the larger one. It was in a main in the main room, and I I've always wanted an opportunity to say a few things about. Colby's work that I that I really like and what I think it says about where we are as a culture right now. So here's that. For now, I've got something I want to say about it. It's um, acrylic on board. It's large and it's titled Play. And this is the thing. This is this is one of the things that I love about Colby Sanford is that he puts these kind of halos around all of his figures, and it's um, it's, it's it's almost as if he is making sacred the most mundane moments. Mm-hmm. in everybody's lives, which to me is basically cultural Mormonism boiled down to its most essential, that everything that happens in your home, everything that happens with you has the potential for holiness. Especially when it's children Especially who look about children. like they're eight or under. And no one does that better than Colby Sanford, who does these really interesting, strong, restrained palettes, but and restrained in the sense that he uses only a few colors and what mm-hmm. he's doing. And the figures almost fill in Baroque proportions yeah. the entire scene. He's, everything's done very carefully. I don't know if figurative artists would call him a figurative artist. I don't know if, if people who are abstract artists would call him an abstract artist. His art doesn't comfortably sit in any one category. But thematically, I don't know if there's anybody who's doing everyday holiness. Mm-hmm in the way he's illustrating I didn't want to use that word let me avoid that word the way that he's painting it he's kind of it's it's there was there was a title of a catalog in the Smithsonian a few years ago that was called it was about um, still life painters called Painters of the Humble Truth yeah this is the this is Mormonism's humble truth or the truth that it wants to perpetuate finally we have a work by two works by mm-hmm. Jethro Gillespie that we that, that we talked about and they're right next to one another and Jethro was for our exhibition that we had last year as the Zion Art Society one of the most talked about pieces by people who came to visit and by us internally it was one of those that really stood out to me yeah you'll remember it was called Tally Mark Quilt it was a white quilt yeah. covered in tally marks and we'll talk more about it in a sec I was I was just surprised by how much I liked it because it was different than my typical taste mm-hmm. and um, what it had to say about um, religion and about art itself it was a it was it was a piece that changed the way that I looked at a lot of art and I wanted an opportunity to revisit it and how pleasant of a person Jethro is yes. which was wonderful he was there and we got to chat for a while and pleasant and Fonzie cool oh yeah <laughs> So we are standing here in front of two works by Jethro Gillespie, Tallymark Quilt, which is hanging on the wall, and Platform, which is on the floor. Tallymark Quilt, people who have been to the uh, Zion Art Society show last year will be familiar with it because it was um, one of the award winners at the, the, the first annual exhibition that we did. 
and it do you want to say something it's, about it? No, I was just going to say that it is it's incredible and we had it hanging uh, in the room with the other award winners and I heard more people stop and just talk about that and admire the work in it than almost any other piece in that show. And what it is is a it's a six foot square quilt that has kind of a grid of tally marks and there's I don't remember how many tens of thousands oh, of tally thousand. marks I think it's something like 20,000 just hand stitched in while he was sitting watching TV in the evenings um, kind of one square at a time but it is this idea of, of repetition and meditative action and it's and the, the and the one on the floor mm-hmm. has that same yeah it's mirrored. aspect it is it is uh, various pieces of wood in geometric shapes that have been put together in a way that's interesting in itself as a shape but he's again and again been nailing nails into it. Now, it comes back to this theme of repetitive action and the results of repetitive action. This is the theme of his career, of his work. I heard him give a talk about it. Um, it's also, he brings it into a religious context. If you weren't religious, if you didn't know that he was religious, you wouldn't know this about him. But it's the idea of daily ritual and its effect on you over extended periods of time. Yeah, and... His uh, his the description here says the tally marks count and register time and draw associations to approaching infinity or eternity, as well as kind of being stuck in in the moment. And it's an interesting art history word juxtaposition between the two. Yeah, I wish they'd hung them on the wall next to one another. But I also realize that the reason they didn't is they put the one on the floor to block you from getting too close to the quilt and touching it. Yeah, it's a white yeah. fabric. Yeah. It's gonna happen. Well, I wish that we had been able to spend more time, and maybe we will. Maybe we'll be able to go back and revisit. We'll certainly, um, in future episodes of Mormon Visual Culture, be interviewing many of the artists that we talked to and and whose works we discussed um, during this bonus podcast. Um, And it's also overwhelming to go to a a show like this, Um, not only because of the number of people that were there, Um, It was hard. There were some pieces that we wanted to talk about, but it was almost impossible to stand in front of and have a lengthy conversation. Um, But before we go, I just want to I want to ask you, Eric, something. Um, This uh, is an opportunity to these kinds of shows to see trends that are happening. It was a question I asked people while we were going around. Um, And I don't know if because we're so close to it, if we can say maybe five years from now, we'll look back at the catalog for the Spring Salon, the 93rd Spring Salon, and say, oh, yeah, these are the trends that I noticed. Mm-hmm. But was there anything that stuck out to you as a trend? Um, I feel like there was less landscape work and more yeah. um, symbolic, figurative work than I was expecting, at least. I mean, you hear yeah. Springville Spring Salon, you think there's going to be a lot of either red rock paintings or mountain landscapes. And the ones that I saw were incredible. Right. There was, um, a, there was a Michael Workman there that was just yes. incredible. I know. Wow. I took a picture of that. Yeah. Um, save. Um, but there was, I noticed one of the things, maybe it was just the room that I was in when I walked in was birds. And I, <laughs> I mentioned this to yeah. you when we were there was, um, and I don't know what it is, but I noticed birds and, um, Portraits of women, yeah, girls maybe. I think it, it, thematically, it seemed like there was there were children, yeah, women, um, and and birds did seem to stick out, and they may seem really superficial as an observation, yeah. But 
I think that one of the things that isn't superficial, I don't think it is superficial as an observation. And it's something that, that I, I think other people noticed too as we were asking, people said, oh, I see a lot of children and women this year, young women in particular. I, I noticed that there wasn't as much of a distinction in the figurative work between, there was a lot of abstract and modernist approach to figurative work. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of, of um, abstraction of forms. There was a lot of experimental use of color and of brushwork that I hadn't seen in the past. It seemed like there was a loosening of brushwork um, for those who were traditionally strict figurative artists were experimenting a lot more with form and color mm-hmm. in the way they were doing things. Another thing that I've noticed is a trend, I'm going to keep coming back to this in our discussion of Mormon visual culture. It'll show up in our guests. A lot of female artists. Yeah. A lot more than than had been in the past. And it's really heartening because um, we know that they've been out there for a long time. Mm-hmm. I just don't know if they've come out in force to submit, or maybe it's, I don't know what, what the math is. I don't know if it's that they haven't been taken seriously. I don't know if it's that they felt, if there's been a confidence issue. I don't know if there's been, um, I, I don't know what it is, but it seemed like this year, and I'll, I'd love to get the numbers from Emily Larson, who's one of the main curators down there, and we'll interview her at some point as to what the numbers are. But it, it felt anecdotally, women were very strong this year mm-hmm. compared to what they had been in years past. So again, the Springville Museum Spring Salon runs through July 8th. They're open um, Tuesday through Saturday from 10 to 5. They're open late on Wednesdays till 9 p.m. Make sure you go see the show. It's incredible. Um, And it is, like Micah said earlier, an enormous museum. Um, So make sure you get to every room because you will realize after spending an hour there, oh, I haven't been to this room yet, and I haven't been to this room yet. And there's incredible pieces in every single room. There was not a, a single room that didn't have something that we could have stood and talked about yeah. for a lot longer than, you know, a 15-minute uh, podcast. Go there on your own if you want to think deeply about art. Go there date night. Go there with your kids. There are things for everybody there to see. It's uh, it's a great experience. Um, can't encourage you enough to go. And this has been a bonus episode. Another special episode. Of Mormon Visual Culture. You can um, hear uh, uh, past episodes on iTunes. You can subscribe to us there. You can go to our website, zionartsociety.org, under the podcast tab. There, we're going to be putting up images of the pieces that we discussed today. Thank you for listening. I'm Micah Christensen. I'm Eric Bigert. Thanks. Thanks.